of a sort of spirit of pioneering and forging ahead. That's one thing I really like about Australia. I can really see the difference, say, to the country of my birth, Germany. And Australia still has this uh, pioneering spirit, I think much stronger embedded in society. They've become reasonably comfortable, most of us, in the suburbs. But the outback is still there, and the stories are there, and the background is still there. And uh, today, Australia Day, the date of the arrival of the first fleet, many of them uh, not exactly being pioneered by choice, but basically being just dumped there, and then having to somehow survive in a completely new country, totally different climate, totally different flora, totally different fauna, and all the things which we have in an established society and are not yet available. You have to start basically from scratch. So without pioneering spirit, whether by choice or by necessity, you know, would have been impossible to manage. And even those who were not sent as convicts in the beginning were not probably exactly in, a, in their dream position there. And then later, of course, you know, there would also be more and more people voluntarily coming because they were you know, driven by the pioneering spirit and rather wanted to try out something completely new. And similarly, the original inhabitants, they had the pioneering spirit deeply embedded in their culture. Anyhow, because to my knowledge, they were usually not sedentary, but constantly moving around. So the indigenous culture, they had that all the time, because they always on the move and they had very few possessions. One reason being, if they were on the move, if one is constantly moving, you tend to have few possessions. Forest monks can relate to that. So that's the great explorers, the first trying to cross Australia, south to north or east to west, or getting through the Simpson Desert or into the Central Plateau or whatever. Now this is what can give us an inspiration for our Dhamma activity. Because as I see it, we need the pioneering spirit in two areas, the one externally and one internally in our Dhamma practice. And uh, externally, it is a job of establishing the sasana, the sasana meaning the Buddhist religion, uh, including all the infrastructure, including the sangha and lay community, including uh, sacred sites, uh, temples, monasteries, forest monasteries, and everything all together is what we call the Buddhist sasana the uh, scriptures, the teachings, having that available, but also the physical infrastructure. And that is certainly a task in a non-Buddhist country which requires pioneering spirit. 
And we can see that just like with the early pioneer, a large amount of them actually died. I think that what they call it seasoning, I think that surviving the first one, two years was already not so easy. And a considerable proportion of the new arrivals were no longer there. They had passed away after two, three years. The ones who had made it then were seasoned and they often would make it then a long time. It's actually a little bit similar if one looks at many of the early pioneers who ended up not necessarily dying but disrobing. Well, that's uh, the very first monastery, Ajahn Kanti Paolo, Nevat Buddha Dhamma in Sydney. Uh, he disrobed. Uh, the next one, Ajahn Jagu in Perth, he disrobed. And similar in the UK, Lomposomero as the very first one there, he actually survived. And he is a great example and inspiration for me from the pioneering spirit. But many of the others who were in a couple of years junior to Longpoa Sumedo, they ended up disrobing. One famously at night time tying up the bed sheets and climbing out of the monastery in Switzerland from the second floor, <laughs> just like a, like a prison escape, one of the most fascinating disorders. And you can see you know, how someone like Lumpur Sumedo embodies that pioneering spirit which is to me expressed, expressed through the fearlessness someone who is uh, brave, fearless, courageous, and uh, forging ahead. And we can see that even when Lungpur Sumedho decided to retire from Amaravati exactly 10 years ago, he was in his mid-70s, and he was a kind of founding abbot of that big monastery. And 10 years ago, he was very well established. He had this very nice kuti, he was highly revered, excellent, supported. But if he retires and Ajahn Amaro is taking over, and he's actually in the monastery, it is quite obvious it will not be a true retirement. and will be very tough for Ajahn Amaro, because everyone would go to Lumpur Sumedho and would ask him, should we really build this or should we not build this? Or what to do with this difficult monk and what to do with this uh, nun who is going through that problem and so on and so on. And how can he ever assume the true position of being the abbot and the leader there if he has got Lumpur Sumit on the right behind him? And uh, we can see you know, that he still had that courage and fearlessness and he just retired and moved away and he didn't even have a clear place at that time. And then Ajanyana Dhammo just invited him and he left him then mostly in Vatvatanaman. But and, uh, when he made the decision to leave that offer was not yet there. So can you imagine at 75 you decide to leave your home you don't even know yet where you end up. <laughs> no, you did that.
and Ajahn Amavohana had the courage to step in. It's very tough in having to fill the shoes of Lumpur Sumedho. It also requires great courage. We see the same now again. He has returned now to Amaravati. He had expressed that he would be very happy to live again in a Western environment in the UK, being able to teach the Dhamma in his native language and just feeling that he can make a useful contribution with whatever life remains in his body and that he would also enjoy it from his own perspective. And uh, Ajahn Amaro very happily invited him back. And when he arrived, it was just a time when they had 1,800 people dying a day in the UK from coronavirus. What, 1,800 a day? So really, really bad. And again, I can see that both these Ajahns they have that fearlessness. Now they felt this is the right decision. They do the best to protect him. And then the Lumpur Sumedho wouldn't back out out of fear of, of the virus. Now he is obviously in the, in the highly dangerous aid group, 85, something in the mid-80s, more even. Later 80s by now. And similar to Namuro, imagine that you invite Lumpur Sumedho to the monastery where the coronavirus is raging in the country with 60,000 new infections a day and I think the seven-day average was more like 1,500 dying. Now, now imagine Lumpur Sumedho catches the virus and maybe dies. Can you imagine the flag Ajahn Amor will be getting? I can well imagine. Because even I was worried and I didn't write to Ajahn Amarone, but I wrote to the Upatak Ajahn Asoko when I heard about the plans in October. And I suggested, is it not maybe better to go back in May, going back into summer in the UK? Now, I don't know Lumpur Sumedho very well and so on, and even I had sent a little email to Ajahn Ashoko. <laughs> so you can imagine the kind of risk Ajahn Amaro is taking there. But this is apparently, from all I hear, what Lumpur Sumedho really wanted. And so Ajahn Amaro just goes for it, and they get all the medical advice, and they all set it up as good as possible. And then they, they forge ahead. There's actually one quality which I have noticed in all the great Ajahns I'm aware of in whichever tradition, whether it is a Japanese Zen monk or a Chinese one, whether it's Theravada monks or in a Tibetan Milarepa, it's always the same. And it started with the Buddha. I think you all know the story how the Bodhisattva lived in the pleasure palace being pampered and spoiled rotten, as they say. Ne? He wouldn't have to do any work, ne? only servants and the dancing girls and only beauty and 
anything that indicates dukkha or hardshipness strenuously removed by his father the king that's all he knows and then just made these four outings but even there and he's on the chariot together with his charioteer and then when his young son is born he decides to go forth and become an ascetic and at the midnight at midnight and he's just riding out into the full moonlight has never been even in his own country really outside the palace and he hasn't been to any any others and now he crosses through several kingdoms all he knows is the palace life in utter the um, luxury and being spoiled every single day and then he arrives and he takes off his jewelry he cuts off his hair he gives another uh, the horse and all his valuable stuff back to Channa the charioteer and then he just walks off when he sees someone and he exchanges his valuable cloth which he's still wearing for some more like ascetic garb and then he just continues now this obviously takes tremendous courage and at that stage he wasn't the Buddha yet he wasn't free from fear he wasn't free from desire and anything but he would uh, conquer his fear he actually describes how he did that as a bodhisattva and he would notice that you know, occasionally fear would arise in his mind so he would deliberately pick the most scary nights I remember that from the werewolf movies it's usually in the full moon I think or new moon is also scary because it's really dark and then he would go to the most scary places in the middle of a, in a really um, remote forest with a bad reputation or he would go to a charnel ground or to some abandoned derelict stupa the most scary places just like you on a full moon night and climbing over the cemetery wall and then at midnight and hanging out there I think many people would be scared even nowadays and then he would sit there in the dark and maybe a peacock would be walking past and it's rustling or some mice or an owl or a deer and when he heard this noise close by and then the fear would arise in his mind and what would he do? does anyone know the sutta? he wouldn't change his posture until he had subdued and conquered that fear he wouldn't give in to the fear and he wouldn't move he wouldn't budge and he would sit through the fear And uh, of course, it's not yet fully abandoning the fear, as in uh, contemplating it as a mind state that is uh, impermanent, something that is ultimately not real because it's not me and mine. And then, most importantly, in the not giving into it by action or speech, he may not be able to drop the fear in his mind 
but his body he would have under control, he wouldn't budge. And he did that now repeatedly. And this is now how he built up the parami of fearlessness for the great battle against Mava in the very end. And he wouldn't budge when the hordes of Mava would assail him under the Bodhi tree. And he had built that up already. There's a similar story of Ajahn Chah who was very scared of ghosts. For modern Westerners, that may sound like a little bit curious, no, such a famous Ajahn, could it be that they're scared of ghosts? But if you know Thai culture, ghosts are very present in that culture and very, very scary. The fear of ghosts in Asian cultures is often very deeply ingrained and Ajahn Shah, like the Bodhisattva, would really check it out. So where would you expect an evil ghost to be? On the cemetery, China ground. And they still have it now, in particular those days in Thailand. The corpses are burned and then just left behind. And some of them may not be very completely burned because there's lots of uh, collecting the firewood and uh, expensive. So he was deliberately uh, facing his greatest fear. He did it uh, even several nights. And uh, it, it was really pushing him to the limit. Uh, he was sitting under his mosquito net and, and at night, after they had poured in uh, the half-burned corpse now of an adult that very night, not far from him. And he was already in a pretty freaked out and then sitting and trying to meditate and he heard these steps walking behind him and around him and walking the right in front of him. And he felt and he didn't dare to open his eyes. He would just keep his eyes closed and trying to meditate on Buddha and trying to investigate the fear. But no, the fear was so strong he couldn't do much investigation at that moment and he felt like no, the, the ghost is waving his burned arms in front of him. Not that he could see it, but it felt like that. No, but he wouldn't budge and even if he didn't have the insight yet of abandoning no, the fear, and he would just sit through it and not budge. The same with Ajahn Man. He didn't have much of a teacher. He had Lung Po Sao, who did teach him to some extent, but uh, limited and mostly on Samadhi. And then he had to uh, basically set out on his own. And having his first really great breakthrough in Sadika Cave, where there was also a very difficult and a local guardian spirit which he had to really battle with and sickness and later the disciples of his had to face the same in order to be able to live with Lung Man 
they had to face first of all the, the deprivation of maybe not getting enough food or getting only sticky rice for extended periods or when they were walking and then maybe some days they don't get anything because there's no village really to go arms around and then they have to reach the village the next day and then of course they had to face the tigers and malaria and snakes and elephants and bears and centipedes and scorpions and mosquitoes <laughs> it's a long list now that is what they would do The same with Ajahn Shah's early disciple, and Nongpa Pong early established. And there was lots of malaria, he would get it no, right in the monastery. And they may have bottle bait, this no, bitter herbal drink, and that's the only thing they had. And sometimes they didn't have that, and then they had no medicine. And I'm not sure whether there was even a hospital, even in Ubon, but it wasn't really an option in any case. So Ajahn Chan would go to the sick monk and console him and tell him, yeah, if you die, don't worry, I look personally after your funeral. <laughs> Which is, of course, a limited consolation. Usually you would hope for a doctor to cure you, you wouldn't be fully consoled no, by the Ajahn telling you that he will personally look after your funeral, but that was obviously no, the best Ajahn Shah could do in that situation because he's not a doctor, he doesn't have medicines, and he would often suffer from malaria himself. But it doesn't mean that he would move to a more convenient place or try to find something where there's absolutely no malaria, and similar with his disciples. And an important thing to understand is that all these great Ajahns, before they were Avahans and the Buddha, before he was a Buddha and then he was a Bodhisattva, it's not that they didn't have fear. But the, all these examples show that they actually did have fear, just like we also have fear and anxiety. But the crucial difference is that they were willing to confront it and they were willing to stand their ground and not to give in to it. And they were willing to deliberately train with it. It was common for Ajahn Man, when he heard about a cave where there's a tiger and maybe a tigress with her cubs quite close to that cave. Ajahn Shah felt this is a great opportunity to send a monk to practice there. <laughs> or if there's a cave, and the, all the villagers say, oh, yeah, Ajahn, but it's quite a nice cave, but better don't go there, there's these awful ghosts. This is exactly the cave Ajahn Shah would feel, uh, or excuse me, Ajahn Man would be inclined to send one of his monks to, to practice there. Because that is what they did themselves. Uh, deliberately exposing the mind to what induces the fear 
and then you know, battling with it. And the battle is twofold. You know, the real victory of the battle is obviously you know, the deep understanding the vipassana and insight. And for example, most of the fear is connected with the body and trying to preserve our body and being afraid of death. So a deep root of fear is not often attachment, identification with the body. And if a person can let go of attachment, identification of the body, then most of the fears, in particular the really strong ones, fears of tigers, sickness, ghosts, and all these kind of things will be gone. But that is basically the attainment of the third stage of enlightenment, and the identification with the body is completely gone. So it requires very deep insight. Of course, samadhi also helps. As long as a person has strong enough samadhi to maintain it, even in the dangerous situation, the fear will also be suppressed. But below that level, what is required and foremost is facing the fear and not giving into it and seeing it arising in the mind and even if one cannot yet contemplate with sufficient wisdom and insight to really let go of the deeper causes of the fear, one can at least not give in to it. And each time when we're not giving in to fear, it means that we come out stronger on the other side. I've seen that with people with anxiety conditions. I think it's the most common mental disorder, actually. Anxiety of all this, I think even more common than depression. And what often happens when a person has an anxiety disorder and when something anxiety-inducing occurs, the same maybe a social situation. Some people have social anxiety and then there's now quite a few people around and then they start feeling really uncomfortable. And the easy solution is to get you out of that situation. So you go back home, where there's no one. And then the anxiety is obviously gone, because there's no other people who can induce anxiety. But there's a big problem, because the moment one backs out, the underlying tendency will actually get stronger. And although it feels okay now when one is alone at home, the next time when the anxiety comes in may be stronger. And the next time that the already only a few people may induce a social anxiety, and the one backs out again and doesn't face it, but one retreats. And it can get so bad that people then don't want to leave their home anymore. And at some stage, the anxiety may come up when they're leaving their bed. And then they don't want to leave the bed anymore. This is going the opposite direction of the Kuba Ajans now. Each time when fear arises in the mind, and we give in to it and back out, 
it feels very good you know, because all the anxiety is gone. But what really happens you know, the underlying tendency gets stronger. And then the next time the fear is a little bit stronger when it arises. But each time when we don't back out, when we confront the fear, we keep sitting, or even better, and we deliberately search out a situation which triggers the fear, and then uh, endure it, and at the same time, of course, not trying to contemplate it as not safe, as not me, as not mine, as impermanent, and we will weaken it, but it doesn't feel nice. <laughs> going against the fear and exposing one, this is very distressing for the heart. Talking a lot about Sangana, but we need courageous lay community as well for our job of establishing a forest monastery in a non-Buddhist culture. And in this way, in the contributing for establishing the whole sasana, because forest monastery is an important part of the sasana. It's an important part not to have some more hermitage setting, which is more quiet and uh, with quite a bit of solitude, and it's an important contribution. You need big training monasteries, you need more like city temples for all the services, you need uh, small monasteries for more solitude. And so our project here is contributing to the wider establishment of the sasana in Australia. And you may know the story in uh, the first monastery from Ajanchana in the west is Chitta Viveka, Chitthurst. And the English Sangha, cast, uh, English Sangha Trust was going for a few decades, hoping to really establish a Western Sangha. And they had already acquired a nice house in the suburbs in London, but it was on a busy street. It was, I think, next to a pub. But it's you know, quite a valuable house. Now, this is in London. And when the monks arrived, you know, they realize this is obviously not a suitable environment for establishing you know, the Ajahn Chah tradition, which is a you know, forest tradition, forest monastery. And then the president of that English Sangha Trust at that time was a very courageous man who had that pioneering spirit and searching around. You know, they found a house an old abandoned or half-abandoned manor house with a dilapidated property around it, which is now under the main building of Chitta Viveka. And when he looked at that thing, the owner wanted to sell it, and it had dry wood and also had wet wood, and it had part of the roof missing, and because of that, it would rain in, and the owner had to give up the parts of the house and some of the rooms because the water would just seep in. And around the house, there would be old stuff lying around and not a nicely mowed lawn and anything like that. 
and then he pushed ahead and pushed it through in that twist that they sold in their very neat uh, terraced house in the British suburb for this dilapidated old manor house which needed renovation inside and out from the ground. Well, That's what they got in exchange. And there was lots of resistance and many people were horrified. Uh, but no, he had a lion's heart and he went ahead no, as he wouldn't have to just now. And once that had happened, then when the monks were going arms round, uh, they bumped into this person, started talking to them, and it turned out he had a forest close by. And uh, he had this dream to turn this forest, which was also not in good shape, back into a traditional, original style in English forest. And he thought, no, he realized he can't do it alone. And then he thought, no, if he offers that to the monks, no, that may achieve that purpose. Another very curious coincidence, no, bumping into that kind of person on arms round, where they normally didn't get any food. And that is another forest now, where they have all the kutis close by. And uh, maybe I should mention uh, here, because some of those who came more recently may not be aware that uh, our lion's heart here was Dr. Garmany, Jaya Singer, who was the uh, president of committee in the year when they invited me here. And uh, they also had a very nice house, not only a house, they had some three acres in Ellen Grove, you know, next to Forest Lake. This is where all the Sri Lankans live, or many of them. So it was very close and convenient and nearby. And there was a nice proper house, and they had even built a kind of little kuti for the monks, but only a few meters from the house, and it had some problems because it wasn't built by someone who really fully understood the needs of a forest monk, but it had already a little kuti. And then this large property around, three acres, and uh, Dr. Garmanina was the main driving force. Later he told me there were, he could count the people who really fully supported him, not the ones who voted yes, but who really fully supported him, who were fully behind it. They could count no more like on one hand. But uh, he was so highly respected in the community in the due to his Dana Parami and other qualities and trustworthiness that uh, no one uh, kind of dared to fully oppose him openly. And he could pull everyone along. And you had a very uh, unknown monk. I had just 11 veins. I had lived in a very obscure little hermitage the last two years. I didn't have any real connection to a big Ajahn. And we had only the property on top. This house wasn't here. And what we had on top was you know, this huge water tank. <laughs> there was a half million liter water tank up there, which was the only structure in the beginning when we bought that thing. And we managed you know, to, another curious coincidence, I think the first 
water tank company I called from the yellow pages and the phone book was actually the one who had built it, very lucky. And I asked them if we got a certificate that it would be safe to use it internally and they cut us a door inside. And at least we could put all our stuff and it was out of the vein. But the whole thing was moldy inside. So they had moved from their nice suburb and now they're out in the sticks. Some of the ladies were actually reluctant to drive out here even during the day because they have to drive alone through the forest. And then this steep road, many of the supporters elderly, they were quite frightened at driving up that steep road. What if my car doesn't make it? And then we tried to move and take you know, the things from the old Vihava. Um, the, the car meant to pull up the trailer didn't have enough power and they had to stop at the bottom of the hill and then these uh, chairs, the old bound chairs, were just unloaded and they were just lying there and so you arrive and you've got this pile of chairs at the bottom of the hill and then you make it to the top and then you have Damasia, single monk who no one really knows and doesn't have any connections, sitting in this old water tank which is moldy and next to us is, is a Danilu, a Portalu, which is a little bit smelly. <laughs> this is what they got for their nice three acres in the suburb where you know, all the Sri Lankans lived. Now I realized you know, that it took a lot of courage for Dr. Garmini to push that along. And my Anamodananda to everyone who contributed to that. But it all turned out good. And one, one has to go for it. So my Anamotana to all those who showed the pioneering spirit and who forged ahead uh, fearlessly. Very different from what we have now. Just one monk not particularly senior, not very connected. We didn't have any internet. I didn't have email. I didn't have a computer. Only a phone, landline phone only. All worked out. And I think the, the ones who have been through that, T came in very early, no? a little bit later, two years after we were here. No? But it was still the time when we were only on top, no? Oh, yeah, you, we, we didn't have this one yet. Oh, yeah. So those who remember that, remember the good old pioneering spirit. And I hope we are not losing it. This is what happens usually in the forest tradition, the one becomes more established, becomes institutionalized religion. And the man has got a big monastery and a big kuti and the abbot has got a big belly <laughs> and, and a big support and becomes very comfy. But the, if we lose the pioneering spirit and the fearlessness of forging ahead, then a big loss has occurred. Because we need the same in our own meditation practice. And that is requires even more coverage. This is why it's quite rare 
to find people even to have that courage to sit down and really look into their own, into their own mind the four hours every day is one of the most scary things you can do looking into your own mind for hours every single day there's not that many people who can do it and have the courage and commitment and then to forge ahead and to go deeper into the mind to go behind just the superficial thinking and chatter and to go more like the subconscious stuff which is deeper you know, the real defilements, the deeper attachments and cravings. And as we go deeper into the mind, you know, there are some very scary things which we may encounter. And then people you know, like to back out again, or oh, I better don't meditate. And maybe I just do punya, I'm very generous, I go then to Devaloka. But if we want to be two Dhamma pioneers, you have to go wide into your own consciousness, wide into your own mind, you have to dive really deep. And when the scary things come and you experience fear, you experience desire, you experience aversion, you experience tiredness, or maybe the mind just becomes sluggish and bored and drained, all kinds of things happen when we meditate. And the moments to back out and not confront it. Just like all the Kubajans and the Buddha himself are so courageous for any external challenge. Same in the mind. We have to go in and we have to allow the scary things into consciousness. This is one of the things which will require the greatest courage to allow the subconscious stuff to come to conscious awareness because that is the only way to contemplate it, to understand it. If we push it away, if we run away from the stuff in our subconscious mind there's no way we can ever understand it. And allowing it to fully go into conscious awareness. I think this is almost like the supreme act of courage. That is a very battle with Mawa. And then when it's in our awareness, not to just act on it, not to be overwhelmed by it, but to use wisdom and insight to contemplate it as not me, not mine, not safe. That's a supreme courage, because that is a way beyond the ocean of Sangsava, to the beyond, the Padayana, the other shore. So may we all have the courage to externally establish the Sangsana in Australia and internally to forge ahead inside our mind, to dig deep and discover the underlying anusaya, the asavas, the
the really deep fetters and samyotanas and digging them out fully, allowing them to come into conscious awareness that we can contemplate them and abandon them so that we can go to where we have never gone before in these endless lives in Sangsava, neither beyond the secure shore, the Nibbana, freedom, liberation, wishing you all the courage on that journey.